and codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 351 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report on all things Star Trek, recorded live on Tuesday, January 23rd, 2018, and available for download or streaming on Friday, January 26th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Tony. All right, Kenna, why don't you tell us what we've got coming up this week? Well, this week we check out a new accolade earned by the cast and crew of Star Trek Discovery, and January marks the 25th anniversary of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. In Star Trek Online news, the 8th anniversary celebration has begun with weekly episode replay rewards and the new Star Trek Discovery lockbox. On screen is episode 12 of Star Trek Discovery, Vaulting Ambition, and as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, you know we love to hear from you between episodes, so please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Captains, this has been a phenomenal month for Priority One Podcast on Patreon.com. Thanks to people like Joshua, Adam, Diana, Starkicker, Sacha, and returning patron, Alan. Also, a big thanks to Ray Borg for increasing his donation, We are drawing closer to our monthly goal. And moments before starting this recording, we had a new patron, Peter A. Now, Captains, we know that each week we remind you that without your support, the lights won't stay on and we can't improve on the content of the show. Something else we failed to mention is that we don't aggressively pursue advertising during the weekly show. That's because we want you to continue to enjoy Priority One on a weekly basis without any interruptions. Now, for big events, we might turn to an advertiser for something like Star Trek Las Vegas, but from week to week, we would prefer not to. But that doesn't happen without your ongoing support. We're just $100 short of our monthly goal. Now, just imagine, if 100 of you donated just $1, we'd already hit that. Now, Captains, of course, we understand that a financial contribution may not be possible, but there are other ways that you can continue to support Priority One, and that's by sharing the show with your friends, your fellow Trekkies, in Star Trek Online, with your fleet and guild in Star Trek timelines, or if you're hanging around friends and talking about Star Trek, point them over to PriorityOnePodcast.com and introduce them to the show, because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Captain Zero thought about working with Priority One? Well, now's your chance. It takes a lot of time and work to compile and edit the show each week, and our dedicated team is stretched a wee bit thin. If you've got experience with audio editing and can spare an hour or two a week, we could sure use your help. If you're interested, we've got a handy form on our website, or just email us at incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's check it out. 
Captains, if you recall a few weeks back, there was an outcry among the fandom when Dr. Hugh Colbert, played by Wilson Cruz, was suddenly killed in the 10th episode of Star Trek Discovery, Despite Yourself. Both Star Trek fans and fans of the wider geek culture were upset by what they saw as Discovery fell into the barrier gaze trope, a well-known theme in mainstream culture that punishes gay characters for trying to be normal in an otherwise cishet storyline. I also spoke about it at great length with Terry Lynn and Dr. Robert Hurt in episode 349 of Priority One. Additionally, we even recorded a very special supplemental podcast, which you can access for free for everyone at patreon.com forward slash priority one. We felt that it was a topic worth sharing with everyone, and it will introduce you to some of the content you'll receive when becoming a patron. We felt that it was a topic that we wanted to share with everyone. So head over to patreon.com forward slash priority one to listen to that episode. Now, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, Discovery's writers didn't intend for that to be the case, following into the barrier gaze trope. And in fact, the LGBTQ advocacy group GLAAD offered a statement of support for the show shortly thereafter. Quote, alongside so many fans, GLAAD cheered the arrival of Star Trek's first gay relationship and we share in their mourning over the death of a beloved groundbreaking character. Death is not always final in the Star Trek universe, and we know the producers plan to continue exploring and telling Stamets and Kolber's epic love story. Wilson Cruz has leveraged his talent as an actor to create a smart, lovable, and strong character in Dr. Kolber. Once again, bursting through doors that were once closed to gay actors in Hollywood. We look forward to watching their love story unfold. End quote. You know, I, I have to add, not only close to gay characters, but also close to Latino characters as well. Now, more importantly, Star Trek Discovery was also nominated for Outstanding Dramatic Series by GLAAD. Wilson Cruz broke the news during a Facebook post on the GLAAD Facebook page. So congratulations to Star Trek Discovery for boldly going where others dared not go before. Studio 360 on PRI.org reproduced a 2010 interview with Ronald D. Moore that spends about five minutes talking about his journey into writing science fiction, particularly Star Trek. It's an interesting glimpse into the life of the man that killed Kirk. For instance, did you know he flunked out of Cornell and it was because of a girlfriend he met in L.A. that he began to write for Star Trek TNG? Again, the audio short's about five minutes and you get a quick look into his life and how he started writing for Trek. You'll also hear why Kirk's death was so important to him in Star Trek Generations. And speaking of Ronald D. Moore, this month, Deep Space Nine celebrates its 25th year anniversary. First airing in January 1993, Deep Space Nine went on for seven seasons and is arguably the most serialized of the Star Trek franchise. Lisa Granshaw from Sci-Fi's Sci-Fi Wire interviewed several members of the creative team and cast behind the series in a sort of oral history of the show. Now, it's a very long and explorative article, but we found some highlights that piqued our interest. For instance, on the topic of serialized versus episodic television, Ronald D. Moore had this to say, quote, All the writers wanted to do longer, continuing, more serialized stories, but Paramount didn't want that. Paramount was very much against that. To be fair, most television was against that in those days. Paramount were terrified that if you tuned into episode 4 and you hadn't seen episode 2 or 3, you'd be confused and just walk away and never watch the show again. There was all this pressure to not do serialized storytelling." End quote. 
And I like how he goes on to say, and then Voyager came along and they quit paying attention to us, so we did whatever we wanted. I thought that was the best part. <laughs> like, they, ev they even recognize themselves as being a bit of the black sheep of the franchise. What, Deep Space Nine? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. yes mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine. I think they're very different, and it's really funny because I was never a huge fan of Deep Space Nine. I can kind of respect it, and I understand, I understand that a lot of people love it, and I understand... I kind of why people love it, but it was never my cup of tea. What's funny is that I loved Next Generation and I loved Voyager. I kind of was like, eh, on Deep Space Nine. And then it usually flips the other way around. There's, a lot, there's people that love Deep Space Nine and they're kind of, eh, on TNG and Voyager. And it's uh, it's kind of interesting to, to think about that. You know, I know I give a lot of grief to Deep Space Nine, but I do appreciate the series for the fact that it... it treaded into the serialized storytelling waters, right? I mean, I think that Deep Space Nine has sort of paved the way for Discovery, right? I mean, there were people who didn't like it in Deep Space Nine, but then diehard Deep Space Nine fans can't, can't argue against that, right? They can't argue that one of the reasons they loved it was that the Dominion War arc. You know, I've, I've said what my problems are with the show, but it, it's interesting to see that they themselves kept pushing. They kept pushing to the point where Paramount just was like, all right, guys, do whatever you want. You know, they, they would they would insert a bit of a serialized, a, a B-plot. That's that's what was interesting about this article is that, they, is that they described the Dominion War, the Dominion War, as the B-plot. Because they, that's, how they, that's how they fed in the serialized storytelling. When, when I think of D-Space Nine, I think about that as the A-plot, right? I think about that as the main, the driving factor of the storytelling in Deep Space Nine. It's, I'm due for a rewatch, but I, I think I'm just going to skip the first three seasons. I think that's just... Two. First do. two seasons. Two seasons. And you should watch the last few episodes of the second season, I think. Elijah, I just wanted to read out the quote, actually. This is by Robert Hewitt Wolf, who's one of the writers on Deep Space Nine, and it's, it's talking about what you said with the B-plot. He says, quote... That said, we did 26 episodes a year, so we could touch on the serialization in a B story. We could ignore it entirely for an episode or two and still have 15 episodes to move that story forward. It all started basically with what was the nature of the Gamma Quadrant. We wanted to put a face on it. We wanted to make it more than just some frontier. And he goes on to describe it a little bit more, but that's a really interesting way to kind of, I think, to kind of uh, tackle where you want to serialize something but you still need to keep it episodic. That's that's kind of a that's kind of a cool thing. So, captains, that brings us to our first community question this week. With Star Trek: Deep Space Nine celebrating its 25th anniversary, how are you going to celebrate as a fan? Are you looking forward to convention events? Maybe you'll do a full rewatch. What about playing Star Trek Online? That's quite heavy in Deep Space Nine storytelling. Let us know in the comments section for this episode on Priority1Podcast.com forward slash PO351 or by answering our community questions post on Facebook or Twitter. Now let's find out what happened this week in Star Trek Online and gaming news. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. In a blog by executive producer Stephen Rocosa, we now officially begin Star Trek Online's 8th anniversary celebrations. In it, Rocosa reminisces about the early days of STO and how eager the team was to begin this journey 8 years ago. Now Star Trek Online has, quote, surpassed the longevity of any Star Trek series, end quote, and is now, quote, 
the longest-lasting touchstone for this 51-year franchise, and still going as strong as ever, end quote. The blog continues to recap the year for both Star Trek Online and the greater franchise, and closes with, quote, over 160 episodes and eight proven years of updates. There has never been a more exciting time to jump into Star Trek Online, end quote. Yes, that's right. The anniversary event has begun. As we mentioned in last week's episode, 350, there's a new reward each week for playing the new featured episode, Scylla and Charybdis. This first week's reward is the Bajor Defense Covariant Shield Array, which will eject plasma and damage nearby enemies when one of the four quadrants of your shield is down. This is also one of the four pieces to the Bajor Defense Set, and when combined with the Bajor Defense Warp Core that you earn with the Denoris Class Interceptor, this two-piece bonus will increase phaser, disruptor, and plasma damage. And I do want to mention that we will not be reviewing the featured episode in this uh, episode of Priority One because we want to give everybody a chance to go and play it. So please do that this weekend. We'll take a look at that next week. But in the meantime, we've got a really great community question. What do you think of the new featured episode, Scylla and Charybdis in Star Trek Online? Now, as we all know, the game was patched on Tuesday, January 23rd for the 8th anniversary celebrations. In addition to the launch of the new featured episode and the re-engineering system, an interesting quality of life improvement also snuck in. In an update to player loadouts, the time it takes to save a new loadout has been decreased. For those of you who are unfamiliar, your loadout is how you outfit your captain, from powers to weapons to the power tray bar. Additionally, you'll now be able to see which loadout was saved last. Additionally, weapons and bridge officers no longer automatically slot onto a player's power tray. Now, there's a lot more to the patch than what we just mentioned, with a load of systems updates to weapons and powers. If you fancy yourself a player that likes to get the absolute most from their character, you might want to review the patch, which we will link to in the show notes for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO351. Have you been watching Star Trek Discovery? Well, remember back in Star Trek Las Vegas when we did that short little five-second video with Steven Ricosa about Discovery assets in Star Trek Online? Well, just as promised, they're here. Now, these ships aren't available for purchase in the C-Store, but instead only available via lockbox or low-buy store. So what's available? In the lockbox, Federation players can get their hands on the Tier 6 Crossfield Class Science Vanguard, a.k.a. the Discovery. Yay! This ship comes fully loaded with a mycelium ambush console that jumps the ship forward, releases a volley of torpedoes at your enemy, then jumps back to its original position. Additionally, you can earn the starship trait Black Alert, which duplicates your ship and hits your foe with a torpedo spread when activating Beam Overload, Cannon Rapid Fire, or any Intelligence Bridge Officer. For Klingons, you can get your hands on the mighty Tier 6 Sarcophagus Dreadnought Carrier, equipped with a multi-target tractor array. Whereas most ships only come equipped with one tractor beam, this ship has 12, which will tear you apart. The captain trait, Honored Dead, will serve as a stacking damage resistance and passive hull regeneration. Also in the low buy store, you can get your hands on the Tier 6 Walker-class light exploration cruiser, aka the Shenzo. 
Equipped with the universal console obfuscation screen, you won't be able to move, but your ship's hull and shields will rapidly replenish, or stop the process early and get a boost to damage. The starship master trait for this ship is the Vulcan Hello. When entering combat, your weapons gain a shield and armor penetration bonus, and weapons power drained from energy weapons is reduced for a brief time. Quote, strike first, strike hard. It's only logical, end quote. Now, there isn't a Klingon counterpart to this ship, so although KDF-aligned players won't be able to fly her, you can use the console and the ship trait by purchasing a less expensive light exploration cruiser package. So those are the big ticket items, because who doesn't like pretty ships to add to their collection? However, there's at least a dozen other items available, some in the lockbox and others in the low-buy store, including new genetic resequencers, named after episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Space weapons via special equipment packs, space device consumables that grant various bonuses, and in the low-buy store, a Harry Mudd outfit for both male and female avatars. The phaser rifle used to blast a hole in the ground in Star Trek Discovery's first episode. You can get Burnham's EV suit. And last, but certainly not least, Stuart, Harry Mudd's pet bug from Discovery's fifth episode, Choose Your Pain. Oh my god, you could buy... <laughs> He could get a pet bug. Yep. That, that kind of rules. So how is Star Trek Online retconning the appearance of Star Trek Discovery-era ships into the game? With some quaint storytelling, of course. In a story post written by community manager Mike Fatum and staff writer Paul Reed, we're told a story about a press conference on Ryza, held by Klingon archaeologist Taroth. Now, according to the story, Taroth has been known to be a bit of a charlatan, but in this case, he really has found something. The long-lost flagship of Tukuvma, the unforgettable. The most powerful ship of its era. The first ship with Klingon cloaking technology, the sacred sarcophagus ship. And in a display of true capitalism, he's made it upgraded replicas for sale. Boom! Stow retcon. Well, that wraps up Star Trek Online news, but before we go, we have some other gaming news. We mentioned a few weeks ago that Star Trek Bridge Crew no longer requires a virtual reality rig. You can, in fact, play with your keyboard, mouse, or a controller, for instance. Now, WindowsCentral.com has published a blog that outlines how to set up your game to play with a gaming controller. We'll have links to that, of course, in the show notes. And hopefully, you'll join us on our Discord channel, and join us for impromptu gaming sessions. Well, that's it for this week's Star Trek Online news. Now let's go see what's on screen for the 12th episode of Star Trek Discovery, Vaulting Ambition. On screen. Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we review the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. So let's find out what's on screen. Episode 12 of Star Trek Discovery is called Vaulting Ambition, and just as in prior episodes, the title gives it away, if you know the end. Well, I'll fast forward here because this is the episode we will all remember as the ridiculous one where the last of the great fan theories was proved to be true. Lorca is from the Mirror Universe, after all. But let's start at the beginning. Burnham and Lorca are on their way to the Emperor's ship, the ISS Charon, and you'll never believe it, but it has a star inside. Cue eye roll. On the ship, Emperor Giorgio is as hospitable as you would imagine, throwing Lorca into the agonizers and quote-unquote welcoming Burnham with the creepiest dinner party for two ever. 
exposition, exposition, and holy cats, Georgiou was Burnham's adopted mother in this universe. Giorgio reveals that Lorca, her once right-hand man, had groomed Burnham from childhood and eventually initiated a relationship with her. It was Mirror Burnham and Mirror Lorca who had plotted to overthrow the Emperor, and for that, Burnham would have to die, daughter or not. In a last-ditch effort to save her own neck, Burnham reveals who she really is and begs the Emperor's assistance, which she promises in exchange for Discovery's technology. However, in the exchange, Burnham starts putting pieces together and realizes that Lorca, her Lorca, is not her Lorca. He said he would chase her across the universes, and he did. The Lorca she knows, the one we all know, is from the Mirror Universe. But what about the B-plot, you cry? Well, fear not. Back on the Discovery, while all this is going on, Stamets is still in a coma and being guided through the mycelial network by Mirror Stamets. Mirror Stamets is in a coma too, having damaged himself and the Spore network, and now he needs Stamets' help to fix it before it undoes the fabric of the universes. Now we see a vision of Dr. Culber, who helps Stamets understand his place, eventually leading him to waking from the coma. But Mirror Stamets awakens too on Mirror Discovery and runs off to some unknown task. Sadly, on our discovery, Stamets and Tilly find that our source of the spores and our way back to the Prime Universe is all dead. But what about the C-plot, you cry? Seriously, for a 38-minute episode, this really packed it in. So I'll keep it short. Vok is Ash is Vok, and he's dying. Lorel is the only one who can save him by stopping the war between his two personalities. Now she does so, Ash slash Vok stops yelling in Klingon, only in English now, and Lorel gives the Klingon death cry. But does anyone actually believe that Vok is gone? Tune in next week for the next thrilling installment of Star Trek Discovery, The End. In your summary, you point out that one of the last fan theories out there has been confirmed that Lorca is in fact a mirror universe infiltrator. But we've had this discussion a little bit in our on-screen for our patrons, which is, and I pose this question also on Sunday, is the problem that we have a week to stew on the entire episode, or is it that we're diehard Star Trek fans, so you know we're overanalyzing everything, or is it poor storytelling? Like, which is it? For me, it's hard to tell. I don't think it's poor storytelling. I think it's good storytelling, and I think part of it is that we have, I mean, we are obsessed fans and we have a week to pour over it, and part of it is that it's our job to kind of pick these things apart. I do think we may have hit maybe one or two too many twists, that it was a little tiny bit too complicated. There was an io9 article this week that I read that was basically like, right, this last revelation is the one that made me rage quit because it was like too much. There's too many twists. Like, which twist are we supposed to be outraged about this time? And I can kind of see the point. I think it's kind of exciting, personally. I'm excited to see where it all ends up. But mostly I think it's we're looking at it under a lens. I think that a show like this with this many twists and turns and this many, you know, sort of, you know, let's call them unreliable narrators in Laurel, in Lorca, these people are supposed to be telling us a story and instead they're telling us lies. You know, they're covering up their own motivations and what they know to be the truth. That is much better dealt with in a bingeable storyline. 
because those cover-ups, those lies, those slight little misleading punches, those deflections, you remember them from when you saw it two hours ago or three hours ago, right? In a binge watch, it's just, it's all fresh in your mind. You don't have time to go through and stew on it. When you have it spread out week to week to week, you can go back and watch the third episode again if you want to, and you have time to go back and confirm if your theory sounds good or looks good and stuff like that. It's just... I think that it would have been much better if they had just dropped all the episodes all at once and let people discover it in sequence and let it happen all at the same time. They have been dropping loads of hints. I mean, which is what you want to do in a binge watch. Yes, because you yes. want people to you want those things to stick out, right? Like, oh my god, remember that happened? Oh my god, you want it to stick out. You want it to pop. Yeah, but not not in a season long epi- uh, you know run. But yeah, we as fans noticed you know Lorca being a little funny with Burnham weeks ago. And it stuck out because it felt out of character and great for a little bit of foreshadowing. But then, of course, by the time this came, we kind of knew it was coming. The only thing I really had a problem with was the stupid light sensitivity thing. I mean, how many (laughs) times have we seen the Mirror Universe and how many different series? And the whole I wear my sunglasses at night thing never came up. I mean, the whole point of these Mirror Universe people is that they're supposed to be hard to pick out. You have to do the scanny quantum thingy to figure them out. Otherwise, the only clue you have is their behavior. Mm-hmm. It's their attitude. It's their it's their alien, foreign, xenophobia, whatever stuff that they do. And it's a throwaway line at the end of Mirror Mirror in the original series where Kirk's like, Hey, well, turn, you know, I guess you didn't have any problem catching you know my duplicate. And Spock goes, nah, it was easy, because it's easy for a civilized man to behave like a beast as opposed to a beast trying to figure out how to be a civilized guy. Mm-hmm. And and what's fascinating about the Lorca character and why I thought from the very beginning he's the most interesting character on the whole show is that he has been the beast behaving as best he can as a civilized man and fooling yeah. everybody. Yeah, He slept with his boss, for God's sakes. I mean, he's... Oh, he's fooling everybody. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought that up because this was one of my comments that I made under the uh, heavy topics mm. section. We know Lorca is a terrible person. He's an awful person. He has come from the Mirror Universe, tried to overthrow the Emperor. He's infiltrated all this stuff, lied about where he came from. He has abused people. I mean, we all forgot about the Tardigrade, but he was pretty awful to him. And yet, I still want him to be redeemed. And I know he can't be. He's a terrible person. I mean, and we'll talk about it in a minute. He groomed Michael Burnham from childhood and, you know, instigated a relationship with her. He ticks all the boxes of a truly terrible person. And yet, I still kind of want him to be better. And this is really stressful and difficult for me. Yeah, and this is why I really hope that the writers didn't go there. I hope they don't have, in the last episode or two, the struggle for Michael Burnham really be, golly, I hope there's something honorable in the Empress Georgiou, or I find something redeeming versus I find some sort of love or redemption in Lorca. I hope that's not the struggle. I don't want it to be. I don't want that to be what happens, but that's probably where it's going to go. She's going to try to Darth Vader, Captain Lorca, or figure out that Georgiou can you know, somehow have some honor or something. I don't want it to be that, but that's probably what it's going to be. I don't know. I think they've definitely crossed a line that I will be genuinely angry if they try to turn around and redeem Lorca with no, all no, of the no, other no. things that they've... I- they, they, they can't they can't. I think that. you can set your mind at ease because the whole thing was supposed to be, this is supposed to be Burnham's journey. She's the protagonist of this 
arc yeah. or season or whatever, that means that the antagonist has to be Lorca. Yeah. Lorca's been there since episode three. He's been the one that's pushed and pulled and yanked on her chain. And they've had multiple, this is your destiny type talks. And, you know, we got to do this to win the war type talks. Can I count on you to be a professional type? They've had a million little interactions where he has pushed her envelope. He's pushed her to the edge of the envelope so many times. That'll be the big countdown. I'm just hoping they don't pull on the heartstrings too much. That's what I'm hoping. You raise a good point about him and his interactions with Michael Burnham over the course of this series. And the events of this episode totally put the entire thing in a totally different light. Now, I know uh, several people had commented that he seemed very attentive to her. He was always super concerned with whether she was going to be safe. He tried to keep her off of missions where she might be in danger. And I think there was kind of a suspicion that maybe he had a fondness for her or he felt responsible for her in some way. Now we find out that they had a romantic relationship that basically he kind of started when she was a minor. And this is like, it was almost like a throwaway comment, but that makes the whole of this series very dark and creepy to me. And it's very interesting the way that the writers are playing with some really heavy, serious topics and doing it in a way that makes you question. And it makes me extremely uncomfortable because we have a case here where it was a father figure who was grooming an underage person and then entered into a relationship with her when she was an adult. We've also dealt with, if you recall, uh, several episodes back and Ash Tyler and his physical relationship with Laurel, whether that was, you know, was he Ash Tyler? Was he Vok? Was it consensual? Was it not? Did he know that it was consensual at the time? The, all, these topics that they're playing with, really, really interesting that they've tackled and makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I don't know how we talk about these things. Well, the point of it is, is that there's no easy resolution. If that's what the writers were intending to convey actually happened, that Michael Burnham is dead. But what it did is it gave the Lorca character sort of the, the roadmap to what the Michael Burnham model, if you want to use like a Cylon you know, sort of allegory, it, the Michael Burnham brain model looked like. And he knew where the mm-hmm. buttons maybe were, and he tried to push them yeah. with the Prime Universe Burnham, and this is where he's going to find out if it worked or not. So, and you know, he's a master manipulator. He got Stamets to do the one more jump thing. Uh, he got Stamets to do the 130 jumps in the first place. Uh, he gets his crew to snap his crew of wussy scientists to become warriors. I mean, he is an excellent manipulator of human emotions and personalities. I hope that's where the writers took this, is that there's enough ambiguity in all the different scenes that it could be that Lorca's motivations were, I gotta keep Burnham safe and alive because without her, I don't get to Georgiou. She has to remain in one piece for me to get to the mirror universe and get to the palace ship. Or it could be because he has a thing for her. We don't know. Yeah. Okay, so we've already tackled some pretty heavy topics, but I have one more that I want to get to. And we talked about this a little bit in Trek It Out, about how the death of Dr. Culber was not falling into that burying your gaze trope. I am finding it really hard to believe that. I really, really feel like that death is still pretty problematic because right now it's a plot point. Basically, Dr. Culber needed to die so that he could be in the mycelial network so that we could get out of the mycelial network. And this to me is exactly the same thing as Counselor Troy's 
sort of uh, mental rape and nemesis. It's a big plot point. If Dr. Culber hadn't died, if he hadn't had that experience, would Stamets have been able to come out of the coma? It's also known as fridging, usually when it happens to a woman, that the girlfriend of the main character has to die to provide that person's motivation. They've gone now a couple of episodes where they've directly dealt with his death, and I'm sorry, I'm failing to see how this isn't burying your gaze. It's not like he's going to be able to visit him in the mycelial network whenever he wants, right? The way that this was set up in this episode was that this was, in fact, a temporary peek into an afterlife with Colbert, right? And so there's nothing eternal about this, right? He is dead and Stamets is not. And when Stamets gets out of the mycelial network, Colbert's no longer there for him. So, yes, I completely agree with you. I don't see how this does not fall into that trope. And then on top of that, I mean, you boot the fact that it's barrier gaze, and then you compare it to fridging, and then on top of that, it was the only Latino character. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. the brown character, the Latino character that also got killed. Yeah. So I was sorely disappointed with this treatment because there is nothing to yet that we have seen that established this relationship as something that will be ongoing. Stamets is going to have to say goodbye, it seems, right? The mycelial network is either going to be destroyed or salvaged at the cost of sacrificing a relationship with Afterlife Culber. Yeah. Ken and I both missed the show where you know you and, and Rob and, and Terry Lynn covered this in depth, but it seems to me like the writers have a little more work to do if they want to justify that statement, you know, that statement of support from Glad. There's they got to give us more. Because right now, Culber's a Force ghost, right? He's Obi-Wan Kenobi slash yeah. Head 6 from Battlestar Galactica. He is a projection from Stamets' memory that the mycelial network can latch onto to say, aha, Mirror Stamets has damaged the mycelial network. Here is a way we can anchor this other dude emotionally to give him motivation to save the network. It's just exactly what Kenna was saying earlier. So the, it's the network itself is trying to save itself, and it's manipulating Stamets via the, his own memories of his dead husband. Right. So I think right. it's almost like almost too perfectly taking advantage of the trope. It's almost like, no, 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 ours is different because you're going to continue to see them on screen and their relationship is going to develop. No, it's not Hugh anymore. It's the groovy shroom is trying to save themselves using Hugh's image. Well, that wasn't directly said whether or not it was the mycelial network projecting an image of Hugh. That's why I'm saying the writers have more work to do. Right, they do. They have more work to do in the next few episodes to establish whether or not what we're seeing is, in fact, Colbert's Katra, right? They started the season with the whole, Katra thing. Uh, you know, Vulcans, Katra, you know, the Vulcans have a soul and then it, it continues on in some way, shape, or form. So they set that up in some way, right? The, this belief in a, dare I say it, afterlife in Star Trek. And therein lies the problem with this being a episodic serialized <laughs> show where we have to wait from yeah. week to week. Because that Sarek show seemed like a throwaway. We may not be yeah. having this argument mm-hmm. if we binge the show yeah, and saw exactly. this, right? And maybe there's something that we haven't seen in the next three, three or four episodes that are left that completely negate all of these things so God, i hope so <laughs> i almost feel bad for the writers right because I, I mean several of them i know are listening to to podcasts like uh discovering trek from our friends over at trek geeks i don't know if they're listening to priority one i'm sure they're hearing criticism from this weekly show that they're producing 
when it's been done like the show's been done this isn't like walking dead where they're still filming you right. know until a few weeks before the finale you know and those shows are written specifically for week to week yeah right those shows are written with that in mind and i think that discovery of being written as a binged show yeah you know like a punisher like a like a daredevil mm -hmm. like a stranger things versus a week-to-week -week show like something like The Walking Dead. Because Walking Dead is episodic, but it works in that weekly format. I almost want to get a television scholar to come in on this and describe the difference between what, how, what we experience with a show like The Walking Dead and what we experience when we binge episodic content like this. Because that might be the problem. That might be the problem. They're doing this triage. They do this triage with Glad and they do this triage with After Trek because they know what's in the future. I'm gonna point my finger at the whole unreliable narrator, unreliable exposition thing. In shows like The Walking Dead, you cut away from the good guys and you go over to the bad guys and you know what the bad guys are doing. They're not hiding anything. They're saying, let's go cure them at four o'clock. And you know they cut away to the good guys and sure enough at 3.55, the good guys say, what's that? I hear something in the forest. Oh, oh, it's the bad guys approaching. So, mm. you know, that's the sort of thing that I think when you do a week to week, versus a binge type show, the betrayals and the twists and the switchings and all that kind of stuff, it's still fresh in your head when you're binging it. But week to week, you know, you've gotta be truthful with your audience. You've gotta just lay it out so that when the credits roll, mm -hmm. they want to know what happens next week, but they have no question about what they just saw. Yeah. They can file that away in memory and not worry about it until the next show comes up. Right. Now, despite that criticism about this bury your gaze trope and and fridge and killing the minority because it, it's man it's it's <laughs> well, kind of everything this is the downside right? of having a mostly minority um, cast if you're going to kill anybody it's going to wind up being a minority that's the flip side of it how many white dudes how many white dudes are on the ship and you can't yeah, kill right, orca because okay, he's a mirror that's universe true. guy all right I'm, i'll get yeah. i'll yield to that I mean, argument i'll yield to that argument i mean that performance between them in this episode was just yeah. Heart-wrenching. And Wilson Cruz knocked it out of the park, man. He just... I mean, his sincerity, his love for Stamets, it just it just shone in this episode. Yeah. And I know that a lot of that also has to do with being comfortable with your with your acting partner, with your scene partner. You know, the two of them have been working together for ages. And, you know, theater is... Sorry, guys. But theater is probably one of the most intimate forms of performing arts that you can do because it's every night is raw and is live and in front of an audience that's going to see it, whether you are whether you mess up or you have a great performance. So this was the first time in this season that I actually went, oh, with the two of them. Yeah. It really is. I think that they, they, they just, they really just were wonderful together. That moment where they go back in time and they're back to brushing their teeth. It was just beautiful. It really was just a beautiful moment. Acting-wise, storyline-wise, congratulations to Wilson Cruz. I mean, he knocked it out of the park this episode. Gracias, amigo. De verdad. Another Islander. So while we're kind of talking about uh, relationships, can I just throw a little bomb in there and ask the big question? Vok, is he gone now? So I've seen two interpretations of this, that Ash Tyler's gone and Vok remained, and then Vok remaining and Ash Tyler being gone. But if you notice, as she's doing the static electricity to his brain, he starts in Klingon mm -hmm. and ends in speaking English. Yep. He finishes the poem in English. Yep. 
So And don't forget her death howl as well. And then she does that death howl. So my interpretation is that Vok is gone. Oh. I do not believe for one second she would do that. I don't believe for a second. I think if anything, she'll suppress Ash Tyler. She may not have a choice. It may be just one of those things like she's just trying to like fix a problem and then it was a fifty fifty chance kind of a thing. Yeah. She decided that she would save the life form on the table and then let the chips fall where they may kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it may not have been entirely in her control, and that may be something. But all that does for me is it just sets up Ash Tyler versus Gabriel Lorca for winning the heart of Michael Burnham, which makes me just want to stab myself. So I don't want that to happen. No, I, there's no way that Michael no, Burnham no, is going to be no. at any interest. No. no, there's been no indication that she has had any interest in Lorca. Not even just carnal sexual. I'm not talking about that. He could try that way because he's a, remember he's a master manipulator. Right. He could try it. He but. could try it. But what I'm saying is, is that it's going to be like the loyalty test. It's going to be a Ash versus Lorca test. No, I don't like. Except that, at all. that they're both awful. Exactly. <laughs> Looking ahead, this is my theory with Burnham that this is going to be her next opportunity to either make a mistake or not, right? The the mistake is, actually, she's going to make a mistake one way or another. Who does she trust? Does she trust Georgiou and her feelings for Georgiou? No. Who's not really Georgiou, it's Mary Georgiou. Or being angry at Lorca, right? She's between a rock and a hard place. She's betrayed by Lorca, and she has to trust the empress of the Terran Empire, who... You know, oh, it was your Georgiou honorable? Yes, so am I. I mean, it's the Terran Empire. Yeah, come on. She killed everybody with a fidget spinner. I mean, <laughs> come on. And oh what's hilarious God, about right. that, what's hilarious about that is that the writers have gone on record to say that they were obsessed with fidget spinners in the writer's room, and that's why it happened that way. Because it was nice. it was because yeah. of fidget spinners, yeah. yes. That's yeah. So I think we're gonna see Burnham put between another rock and a hard place where is she going to switch her phaser to stun or kill? And who is it gonna be towards? Yeah. I think that's gonna be the interesting outcome here. I think this is a really interesting turning point for potentially Laurel as well. I was trying to figure out whether she has turned a corner with the Federation, whether she believed Saru when he was telling her that, you know, we're stuck in a place, you know, the war is over, there's nothing left. And then she agrees to help. And then that whole scene where she helps, you know, we'll see the results of that later. But I found myself wondering, have we seen, is this the beginning of Laurel coming to the Federation or forming an alliance or changing her feelings towards the Federation? That would be uh, kind of interesting because we've kind of forgotten about her and her plight this whole time. It's all been Ash Tyler and everybody else. But this is the first time she's been out of that cell since, gosh, since they were back on the sarcophagus ship. Since she jumped into the transporter beam. Mm -hmm. That could be interesting, but I do think that they're going to have to find a way to kill her. She's not going to survive the season, I don't think. Something's going to happen with her, um, you know, just to... I hope that's not true. I think if there's any quote-unquote villain who's redeemable in this arc, it's Laurel. And so I kind of hope maybe that that might happen. I hope somebody comes out good on the other side. Saru will be fine. Uh, can we talk about Kelpie and Soup? Uh, I don't want to talk about Kelpie and Soup. <laughs> God, the whole scene was brilliant. Here, have my ganglia. <laughs> and she picks a roux, yeah. too. She picks a roux. 
That was the she worst She picked part. the one that looked like Saru. Yeah. I noticed because we were all doing it as well. Yes. Did you do oh, it? Yeah. I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm going, like, I was picking man. the, I was looking at the one because I thought, oh, it's going to be her personal slave. Yes. And, and I'm picking, I'm looking She's at trying to figure lobster. out which one looks just like Saru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she was picking lobster. <laughs> and I think, and she played that. I mean, it was kind of over the top the way she played it. But no, no, that's not, that's it, what I look like when I try to eat oysters. Yeah, <laughs> Sonequa Martin Green hit it right on. It was fine. That whole scene between the two of those women was fantastic and yes. just so visceral. And boy, did you believe Mira Giorgio? She was just great. Well, captains, that wraps up our review of the twelfth episode of Star Trek Discovery, titled "Vaulting Ambition." For a longer review of the episode, be sure to check us out over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash priority one. At $10, you'll receive our on-screen supplementals, which is a weekly analysis shortly after the episode airs on CBS All Access. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Episode 350's first community question was, What episode of Star Trek do you think is strong enough to be a story arc on its own? From Twitter, Patreon supporter Chris Keane says, A Star Trek episode that could easily be a story arc would be TOS episode by any other name. I always wanted to see more of that episode after the way it ended with Kirk saying we would be welcome friends. How did the aliens adapt to Federation life and did more of them come? I think that was the one with the Andromeda Galaxy aliens. And so we never did find out what happened to those guys. In true TOS style, they forgot about it the next week, so... Right, episodic versus serialized. (laughs) Could you imagine if each of those significant stories had been made into a story arc? TOS would still be going. They could do an entire one of... uh, What's the one with the Romulans? Where they hadn't seen the Romulans in 100 years. Balanced Terror? That's the one. That would have made a great sort of TOS story arc, I thought. Yeah. Via Twitter, Patreon supporter Starkicker writes, The ongoing adventures of the Janeway Paris Salamanders! No. No, seriously, Year of Hell would make a good arc. Especially in today's darker television landscape. Have to agree. It's not a bad one. It already got a two-parter. Yeah, but I think Voyager would have done way better serialized. Mm. Well, yeah. You know, like just one long story. I really think it would have done better serialized. Well, it kind of did, but then they tried to make it episodic because it was the continuing journey of them getting home, wasn't it? Yeah. It's just that there was no drama around them getting home. They just kind of exactly. kept going. Exactly. <laughs> Every week, everything got repaired. All the holes got patched up. They somehow made more photon torpedoes. If they had been able to do a year of hell, year. Like, think of the third season of Enterprise, right? That one was a serialized storytelling where they were kind of able to reset after the end of the year. Mm. But for that year, conditions on the ship were going to degrade. Holes were not going to be patched. People were going to be hurt. You know, that kind of stuff. So it's like you have to to plan ahead to go into it. They just didn't have that capability back in the 90s. From PriorityOnePodcast.com, Tyler Maxwell writes, Year of Hell. He agrees. One of the best story arcs in Voyager. Heck, that should have been the whole series. Voyager and crew breaking and running out of irreplaceable things, stuff getting harder the farther they go, dealing with destroyed decks and deaths, and not just crewman what's-his-face who only shows up in that one episode. 
So yeah, Tyler Maxwell, I think, agrees with you a bit, Tony. Yeah, this is the thing, because one of the things that article we discussed in Trek It Out was that Ronald Moore kind of had a choice. He interviewed with the Voyager people, and he interviewed with the Deep Space Nine people, and the Deep Space Nine people kind of sold him. Mm. It's like, well, we're going to have this darker tone, and we're trying to tell a longer story, and there's going to be some tension between crew members and stuff, and Moore's like... Yeah, that sounds more like I'm or more interested in that. But if Moore had been on Voyager yeah. as more of a senior person, he might have been able to sort of pull it that way. But again, there was more suits, attention from Paramount on that story, so they might have put the wall up. And then we never would have gotten Battlestar Galactica. So I think mm. things worked out for the best. Things worked out for the best. <laughs> David Roosh wrote in via Facebook, The Babel arc was great. Would have loved to see more of that one. Is that TOS? Babel's TOS, right? Journey to Babel? That's TOS. There was also, I believe, kind of a prequel on Enterprise. They had a bit on Enterprise where they were trying to, I don't know if it was Babel or not, but they were trying to do something. The whole idea of grand conferences and people trying to get together, it can be interesting because you get all the different flavors of species and stuff. So, yeah. Episode 350's second community question was, what part of the 8th anniversary event in Star Trek Online are you most looking forward to? The Omega minigame, the party popper, maybe the new ship? Let us know. From Facebook, Arnold Ogando said, The Bajoran ship is the grand prize for me. From Twitter, Ocho says, The party popper, of course, have been collecting them and have every one since the first anniversary. Smiley face. I'm actually really jealous of Ocho here because I missed one last year. Now, I have all of the party poppers since I started playing Star Trek Online. I want to say the... F- fifth or the sixth anniversary was my first one but I missed one last year uh, and and I want to have to go back and see if I can get the others so yeah. I'm jealous jelly totes jelly totes jelly Sean Newboy writes in on PriorityOnePodcast.com wonderful show everyone can't wait for the new ship I've, I've got ship fatigue I'm running out of storage thank you for your comment Sean Newboy but it takes a lot for a new ship to tempt me even free ones because now I'm full like, I filled up on free ones, so yeah, it has to be good enough that I want to kick out one of the old ones that I earned. So it's hard. That bar is high now. Well, this week we tried something new and unleashed our first of several Gifit Fridays, or hashtag GIF, or hashtag GIF, no. if you're weird. Yeah. This week was the big man himself, Elijah. Now, there were some really fun GIFs. No mariachi bands. Bravo, listeners. Yeah, thanks. Steven Savoy at Kinslayer FF7. One out, though, with a Wayne and Garth. We're not worthy. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. These were fun. Thank you for not taking it down the mariachi band. I appreciate it. I was kind of expecting Tony to, to chime in on that one. It's one of the greatest scenes in Star Trek. I gave you Oscar Isaac. Oh, you did give me Oscar Isaac. I like that one. That yeah. was good. That was good. <laughs> These are getting fun. You know why? Cause, so Facebook now, at least my Facebook wall, because I'm surrounded by theater people, is like, okay, describe me in a Disney GIF kind of thing. And then yeah. I, and we were like, oh, my God, let's do one for Star Trek, you know? So hopefully you all enjoy it. Yeah. We once again took to Twitter for our weekly survey Sunday. Who's your favorite at Star Trek CBS human character? Your favorite hashtag Star Trek Discovery not on the list? Tell us who it is. And out of 71 votes, which makes this statistically significant, 17% of you said Burnham, hashtag SMG4MVP. 28% said Lorca, hashtag Mystery Man. 14% said Stamets, hashtag Shrewman. And 41%, okay, here you go, Elijah, who probably voted six times. 
Tilly. <laughs> Hashtag silly for Tilly. I did not. How many times did you vote? Be honest. You're among friends. I actually don't think I voted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed that 28% voted for Lorca because I kind of thought I was alone in that. No, that would have been my choice too. We talked about my conflicting feelings already and on screen, but I really thought that everybody would hate him by now. But, you know, I'm glad to see there's still a little support out there. Well, that wraps up episode 351 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log, Women at Warp, and the brand new Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But before we go, here's a reminder of our community questions this week. How are you celebrating Deep Space Nine's 25th anniversary this year? Are you re-watching it? Looking forward to the new documentary by Iris Stephen Bear? Are you logging into Star Trek Online to play all the DS9 content? And what are your thoughts on the new featured episode in Star Trek Online? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up today. Don't forget, every Saturday night, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel, where we review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as highlighting some of the amazing members in the fleet. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, and earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is always something for all STO players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash priority one. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. Now with a brand new format, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And our latest endeavor, Heroes Rise, brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to heroesrisepodcast.com to discover their secrets. A special thanks to our audio team, led by Michael McDonald, with assistance from Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, with special support from Ben Churchill and James Skifter, old friends of Priority One. And of course, Midnight Shadow 7 of Hollow Sweet Media. Speaking of Jake Morgan, another thanks to him for spearheading all of our social media endeavors as community manager. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producer, Navy Boats Lou. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage.
Transfer complete. Whoa, what the? Somebody's like either a, cat? a door or a cat. <laughs> That'd be my daughter. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Sorry. I stand corrected. <laughs> Whoops, foot in my mouth. Well, captains, it's time to find out what's on screen. That's dumb. <laughs> you suck <laughs> so bad. <laughs> would have just said it at the end of Stone News. <laughs> we would have just said it at the end of Stone On screen? <laughs> That's not so very creative. mean. <laughs> You're like, no stupid. That was horrible. You just Sorry, set a certain bar for your segues, and you really, I'm going to tell you, you fell flat on your face on that uh, one. I mean, objectively <laughs> speaking. You do have a few, you do kind of, Throw a little Lawrence Welk conductor baton. And that was so great that to hear from the people <laughs> saying things. And now we hear new things. And, and that one was just like, and here's the next segment. <laughs> Hello. Cue <laughs> the next segment. Yeah, one good. It wasn't good. <laughs> just... So what I heard is that Kenna is full of ship. That's why we keep you in charge. I can't, I can't say anything. I, That's th this why actually we keep leads nicely into our uh, next bit. <sighs> so, all right, hold on. Before we hit stop, because I think I want this to hit the bloopers. Um, it wasn't until like today that I was going through Patreon, and I realized that it's not Navy Boat Slew. Yeah. It's Navy Boat Slew. Lou. Really? You've just figured yeah. that out? Oh, jeez. God. Really? Yeah, but I've been saying Navy He's Boat Slew, and nobody's or... nobody corrected me. <clears throat> well, it kind of yeah, blends together. First of, it kind of blends together. It does yeah, blend, yeah, 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 it does blend together. It, blend it does blend slew? together. Navy Boat Slew. I don't know. I don't know. You I don't know. We, you I mean, well, you can slew a turret, you know, like with, the, with you know, you bring a turret yeah, into, into, know, into range, just... and boats have a lot of turrets on it, but, I suppose. It dawned. I think it was also his his image was a uh, was like a naval ship, and I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense. So he's he's he must he must have served in the navy. So navy boats, navy boats. Lou. So Lou is his name. So thanks, Lou. <laughs> he's never once right. called in to complain. Yeah, Probably because once, no. it right, sounds like you've been reading it correctly the entire time, but now he knows you've been doing it wrong, and he's going to be like, screw you guys! <laughs> so she he's going to call in this week going, God, you've been doing it right for six years! It's slow! It's slow, damn you! Why would you even think it was the other way? <laughs> All right, everybody hit stop.